If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Meepleville Meets. We are so excited this week on this episode because we have Richard Rado Ham. Hello, what Richard. What are you doing here? What's happening? How, did... <laughs> How are you doing? It's good to see you. It's very good to see you, sir. I was just sitting down to film some stuff, but I can put that on hold for you. I see that, and it looks like you have Altiplano on the table there. Good eye. Very good eye, sir. Yeah, you can't can't miss the alpaca there, right? Yep, yep, yep. Looks fantastic. So how you been? Everything been good? Uh, been pretty good. I took a very nasty spill down a very steep slope the other day and twisted my ankle up pretty bad. So ever since then, I've been hobbling around like an old man, like oh. uh, like an age appropriate to my gray hair. Uh, but otherwise, things are going okay. Very, very good. That is good to see. So right off the bat, I want to go ahead and get into, I see you're wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. Yes, I am. And- Yes, because and everybody knows that's a big part of what's going on in society today. So I guess just the basic question is, is what exactly does Black Lives Matter mean to you? And why are you using, say, your platform and wearing the shirt to send out the message? Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked, because uh, it is something that, well, you know, Obviously, as things have started to literally explode over the last couple of months with the death of uh, of uh, George Floyd and all of that, as as um, I started seeing other content creators who I greatly respect stepping up and you know and, and starting to be vocal about the state of the world, and I realized that's not something I've ever done personally. I, I felt like. There's there's one particular hashtag that started you know making the rounds on Twitter and social media and all that and that was um, white silence equals white consent and honestly that phrase hit me like a freight truck when I realized just how true that is and how while of course I have always supported um, you know social justice and equality for all and of course I have been appalled by, you know, everything that I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, I was a full-grown adult um, in the 90s with, with, with the Rodney King beatings and all of that. And, and you know, I've watched Mississippi Burning and, you know, A Time to Kill, and I've been moved to tears by these things. But I've never really taken it beyond that, beyond just kind of internal lessons I took from it. And um, I don't know if you know Mark Bernardin. He is a, uh, a television writer. He, he used to actually be a, a film critic and all that. And he does a show with Kevin Smith, the, uh, the film director, called Fat Man Beyond. And the two of them did an episode. It was a very out of character because it was very somber. And it was really just a platform to let Mark, who is a black man um, you know, in, in Hollywood, uh, you know, pontificate for almost two hours. And prior to that, I have always thought of Mark Bernard as, wow. He's just a geek like me. He loves talking about Star Wars and and Marvel comics and all that. And that's all I'd ever really thought of him as. And to hear him talk incredibly eloquently and just completely off the cuff about his life 
Um, which I had always equated, well, yo, he's had moderate success as a content creator. I've had moderate success. We're both geeks. But, oh, my God, look at this other side of his life. When he talked about the armor that he has to put on every day as he walks out the door. And he made a, a very off-the-cuff, you know, Kevin asked, you know, I, I've never really thought about that, about, you know, what your, how it is different for you to walk out the door every day than it is for me. And what is that like? And, um, you know, and, and how can that even affect you? And how, how can you go forward? And Mark, he had a line that, um, what was it? It was, you know, it's kind of like gravity. I, I just know it's there all the time. And because gravity exists, I know I got to be careful or I'll trip and fall. And to hear him talk about, you know, uh, systemic racism is real and I've got to be careful or I'll trip and fall in a much worse way. And, you know, that just, that was another thing to just completely slammed into me so hard. And I realized, you know, that at the same time, you know, white silence, white consent, that I have to do something. Right. And, um, and yes, of course, I can donate to worthy causes. And I posted on my biggest video of the month, my monthly roundup. Hey, folks, here's a link. Please consider giving if you can. And if you can't, please consider, um, you know, just, you know, lifting up the voices of others. Please stop. Like what I have been doing my entire adult life is sitting on the fence and it's time to choose a side. And I, I want to very loudly trumpet the side I choose. And I don't want to be as foolish and naive as to say, well, you know what? I'm just going to wear this shirt until social justice is achieved because that's ridiculous, obviously. But I, you know, the journey I have been on as a incredibly privileged white dude uh, who has the world created for me. I am literally default reference man um, in the whole world revolves around my needs. I realized, well, it, it's time for me to step up. So, I mean, I, I've been wearing this shirt and I'm so happy to say that while I've gotten a huge amount of pushback, I have seen a drop off in the support my show gets financially. And, you know, the stuff you would expect, unfortunately, because of the world we live in, overall, the response has been incredibly positive. And, you know, that's very heartening. And I like the fact that most videos I put up now in the comments on YouTube, there are people saying, I love the shirt. It's great. And um, I think the more this message gets normalized, the, the less it is something you have to think about. It's more just, oh, you don't even think twice about it the better. And that's what I hope to do. That's why, you know, I've got in the mail, I'm waiting for um, in gun violence shirts to show up and, uh, you know, uh, you know, make America or make America green again shirts. I'm, you know, I'm, I, 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 I've made a sea change and I have a platform. And even if it's nothing more than just wearing a little shirt, I do think it bears repeating. And the more all of us repeat it, the better. I would, I would, I would agree with you hundred percent. And, and again, I happen to be on the side that you're on to, and and I applaud you for wearing that shirt and using your platform to do that. But but let's delve into this a little bit further. All right. So if you say apparently, folks, we are not talking about board games today, <laughs> and that is okay. I mean, yeah, there's plenty well, of time to talk about board games. There is, and I just want to go ahead and remind the audience that one of the things here that I'm trying to do with Meeple Meets is to actually get to meet people and to get to know them in a way other than just sitting at the table. Because at the end of the day, yes, we have that interaction at the table for an hour or two, and it's great. It's fantastic. We're both engaging, or not both, but all of us at the table are engaging in something we love. But once we get up from the table, we are human beings. We are people in this world, in society, and we are dealing with things. So it is good 
to have these discussions. And I'm glad that you're willing to do this. So uh, coming along in this, you had mentioned that you had, you know, watched the movies, seen Mississippi burning, all this kind of stuff. You felt you were a socially aware person. Yes. You were on the right side of history and all this kind of stuff. However, why in the George Floyd incident on May 25th, I believe it was that eight minutes and 46 seconds where that number is ingrained in people's minds. Why all of a sudden was there a sort of rebirth of Richard or why did you feel that, okay, now is the time? Because of course, a lot of societies done the same thing you're doing, but you specifically, is it that turn was the turning point for you? A big part of it was seeing someone I thought I knew in a different light. You know, the, the Mark Bernard and things, if I hadn't watched that video, I don't know that I would have been spurred to do much more than make some donations to the ACLU and the NAACP and BLM and all of that. I mean, I probably, I would have done that job done. I've done my part. If anybody asks, I'll speak loud and proud, but let's just go back onto my life. And Mark really made me uh, start to think about, but that wasn't it. Completely unrelated and completely coincidentally in April of this year on Twitter, which I have to admit, I don't really spend much time on Twitter. I never really have. To me, Twitter is a place that I can just post, hey, everybody, I put up a new gameplay video if you want to watch it. And I follow a very small number of people. I don't understand, Tim, how people follow 3,000 people on Twitter. I don't get that. It's (laughs) mind-boggling to me. But what had happened, um, there is uh, uh, another board game content creator, uh, a woman, who had been doxxed. And for folks who don't know, that means her real life uh, personal details, her address and whatnot had been released publicly and maliciously so that she could be further targeted. And her response to that, and it's not the first time she has you know, been at the center of firestorms or controversy and trolls coming at her and, and, and really trying to tear her down. Her response to that was to identify, right, this is a bad person. And look, um, Rado, Tom Vassell. And uh, 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 Matt Leacock, uh, Rob Davio, this person who is doing this follows all of you. I am putting out a public call to um, everybody. Uh, would, you, would you block him to send a message that his behavior, look at what he's done. His behavior is, is not cool. I guess I should say he or she, but presumably he. Um, and, uh, and what I should have done, Tim, at that moment was... Uh, either said, okay, I I got your back. Fine. That's totally cool. Done. That's what most people did. Um, Or if I, if I had an issue, I should have responded to her directly and said, Hey, can I get a little bit more information? This is, this is terrible. I can't stand this has happened. Can I get some more information? Cause you're asking me to make a call to action. And I'm just, I'm, this is coming out of left field for me. I did the third thing, which is unbeknownst to me with the best of intentions, I didn't realize at the time I became a sea lion. And I, I, I assume you know the, the term sea lioning? No. I'm no. Oh, no. I did not know either. There's a, uh, you, can, you can find it on Wikipedia now. It is a thing. It is a form of passive aggressive trolling where the troll will take on an air of civility and curiosity and willingness to engage in open discussion about all ideas. All ideas are worth discussing because um, bad ideas are trumped by good ideas. And um, it's called sea lining because there's a very famous cartoon where a sea lion shows up and just becomes just an awful 
pr- uh, person that really ruins people's lives under the guise of civility and you know uses it at, uh, kind of weaponizes civility i posted publicly hey can i get a little bit more information about this this doesn't i'm, I'm not really comfortable with necessarily blanket blocking somebody and um to everybody who has been on the other side of these kind, you know, been on the receiving end of these kinds of targeted, um, you know, troll behaviors, I looked like yet another person who was trying to weaponize civility. And I wasn't. And I was totally unaware of what I was doing. And I really doubled down. I said, no, 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 I really just want to talk about this. Because, you know, a, a, a troll is a hurt person. Hurt people hurt hurt people. And, you know, I mean, the, surely the best way to address this is to, um, you know, is to try to get to the human behind the troll. And um, and I opened up a floodgate of anger and frustration and disappointment. So many people who thought they knew me were very disappointed because they thought, oh, Rado's one of them too. Um, and, of course, I wasn't. Nobody could really know my heart, you know, and that I was genuinely coming. I mean, I was called into this room, didn't really know. I thought I knew stuff, but I didn't. And I proceeded to inadvertently use the same tools that sea lions use. And, um, you know, this went on for several days with me. Just look, just I'll maintain civility. I'll get to the bottom of this. Only through conversation and dialogue can we have an understanding. And eventually uh, there were a few other folks, mostly women or, you know, female content developers who were willing to talk to me and and give me the time of day, which I totally understand why it's not their obligation to educate me. It's all of our obligation to learn and grow, but they took the time and, you know, it really opened my eyes to the impact. And then further, I continued on. I ended up spending uh, two or three hours talking to Eric Lang in a Skype call. And, um, you know, one of the people who blocked me and just, I mean, really came down hard on me as part of the problem. I ended up, uh, uh, Brandon Dixon of Swordsfall, which is a very, very cool, um, you know, black-centric, Afrocentric cyberpunk role-playing game, which just looks amazing. I suggest, every if you're looking for something really fresh and innovative in RPG space, check out Swordsfall. Brandon um, was willing to talk to me, uh, you know, face-to-face in Skype. And it was so eye-opening for me that I... You know, it's what I said earlier. Uh, I mean, I actually took so many notes from talking to both of them. And to uh, I, I, should I name everybody? I'm not really sure. I don't know if every. I don't even know if I should name the the folks I did name. But I just want to give credit where credit's due. So many people were willing to open up their world perspective to me and let me know the impact my well-meaning, but perhaps not. Uh, you know, my my intentions don't matter. The results matter, and. At the same time that I'm going through this, because even though it was over, it was just a little flurry, a bunch of people blocked me, walked away. I'm like, oh, I just don't understand this at all. But it stayed with me for weeks and weeks. And then, um, you know, the the world exploded in a much bigger, louder way. And into the soup, I was already, well, who am I? How do I comport myself? I thought I was being a help. I'm understanding maybe I wasn't. And then this other thing happened. Um, and then I saw Mark Bernardin give, I, I mean, I wish I could have a 10th of his eloquence and grace and brilliance to be able to communicate all of these things, but I'm just trying to stumble my way through all of it. And all of this stuff together made me realize, um, you know, I, Hey, I just turned 51 and, uh, 
gosh, what was one line that somebody told me? What do you call um, 10 moderates and a Nazi who are sitting down at the table? 11 Nazis. Because at the end of the day, if you are not full-throatedly saying no, 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 if you're saying, well, let's sit down and talk, the, whatever your intentions are, the reality of social interactions, especially in this modern internet world where we're still all trying to learn how to be humans online. I mean, this is so new to us as a species, the lack of face-to-face communication and the miscues that come out of it. Um, if you are not full-throated on picking a side, staying on the fence means you have picked a side, means you have, you are indirectly declaring, well, you know what? On some level, I guess I'm okay with that. Okay. Okay. This, this, this is a good point. I'd, I'd like to talk about this a little bit further. Okay. You, you keep referencing Mark Bernardin. Is that his name? I'm getting yes. Mark Bernardin. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the things he said, of course, I could echo those same things as a black man myself. Um, the lady, uh, the woman who asked you uh, to block this person who was uh, doing those bad things to her. Yeah. Um, when George Floyd said the words, I can't breathe, those were the same exact words Garner said. So my question about this is, it's people have heard these things. Yeah. These things aren't new. So why do you think that you and society is all of a sudden starting to listen and come to the realization that you said instead of hmm okay being sort of quote a moderate yeah coming to the point where no i have to make a stand and say no or make a stand what why all of a sudden it's it you know has that point come i, I obviously it's a conflux of things um you know and everybody's going to have everyone's a, a unique individual they're all going to have their own unique Stories that, you know, inform what their decisions were. I think on a meta level, certainly one thing uh, about the George Floyd, and I think I said Floyd George earlier. I'm very sorry about that. I'm sorry to his family. It's an important name. It's just unfortunate. It's two first names. It's easy to flip. Um, But, you know, one of the things that makes the George, or a couple of things that make the George Floyd uh, situation different. Um, One is the fact that normally... These situations are resolved by gunfire. And I think in America anyway, we have such a ridiculous relationship with guns. Um, We have such a, well, yeah, I know it's problematic, but my whole identity is wrapped up in the support of guns. So I have to push that aside. Um, That's not how it went down. He, as you said, did slowly in front of all of us die. He was slowly murdered as he cried for his mother. And, you know, it's not the first time we've seen a large, strong black man choked to death in front of us, of course. Um, but there, there, was, there was something about the potency of this, that it wasn't just over and done and we could move on to the next thing. I think that makes this particular atrocity maybe a bit more of a flashpoint. Um, you know, we didn't see, oh, is it Bri- Breonna Taylor? We didn't see the home invasion that, um, you know, led to that tragedy. Um, you know, and often we just see these as, as quick little things. You know, I mean, this is a case where social media 
while it can be the source of a lot of ills, can also be a source for change. I mean, you look at the the, the Arab Spring that we had a few years ago, which was largely driven by um, people drawing support from social media. I mean, there's a lot of upside. Uh, but another huge element, I think the thing that makes this one different is it came at a time when we were all stuck at home. And yes, we couldn't just go back. Yeah, we couldn't go back to our day-to-day lives. We couldn't say, oh my gosh, that's really terrible. But I got to worry about, you know, getting the kids to soccer practice now, you know, it it allowed us as a society, it allowed this story to have legs. And sadly, we have now moved on. COVID is now the story of the day. We're recording this, what, on the middle of July. And um, while there are still peaceful protests going on everywhere, there is still, I mean, just this weekend, uh, a peaceful protester was shot in the head in Portland, Oregon. And um, I believe he has a cracked skull now as a result. Um, you know, and did that make national news? No. In spite of the fact that it was a white peaceful protester, even. Um, just literally holding up a boombox like uh, John Cusack and say anything, playing audio to, um, I believe it was a federal law enforcement agent. And then one of them just shot him in the head. And, you know, it's it's scary that we're moving on from this as quick as we are. And if it wasn't for COVID, I think we probably would have moved on a lot quicker in the first place. You're absolutely right. It, it, it could be. And it's good. Again, I'll just, I'll just have to reiterate that I'm so glad that you continue to wear the shirt because that will persist as a reminder and not allow it to just move on. Yeah. But I, I'd also still like to discuss a little okay. bit because I have trouble with this. I'm sure other people do. You said you did too. So at this point, with a lot of this going on, we're all asking for people to listen. We want to have conversations and talking. However, before you said with this one particular woman, you were like, well, hey, I want to know what's going on. Inform me. Educate me. So it seems it's a little like like if like if people are like well hey I I wanted to ask, ask questions I wanted to find out but now you're getting mad at me so. It seems like a fine line, Richard. So do me, do me do me a favor and try to explain the difference between wanting to listen and wanting to learn. Why is one right and what? Do, do you understand where I'm going with this? I understand. I mean, I can speak from my own experience. Okay. One thing that is certainly I've started to see a lot of now that I wear this shirt regularly. Um, and yes, to people who ask, I do have a washing machine. I do wash this shirt. Um, it's not like I record 50 hours of video all back to back. I mean, I only wear it. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind for people who that's a very common question I get. It's got to go on my FAQ now. But um, uh, let's see. What, what, what I ran into was you know it was one of the big one of the first main talking points I came away from was the uh, you know the, the the it was addressed to me that you know I didn't have to post publicly when I was asked publicly to take this particular action instead of you know a, the the Twitter equivalent of hitting reply to all which I have to admit I was such a novice at Twitter I didn't even think about that I felt like I was just responding to the person who asked me the question but no I was making in my in, in my inability to say, you got it, done, but instead, yeah, but what about? What aboutism, of course, is an insanely powerful tool that, the, um, that those who do not want to see change in the status quo, it is probably their most powerful tool. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, 
sure. Yeah, you, you, you've got a good point about, you know, all of this you know, these particular statistics that, you know, talk about black incarceration versus, you know, per capita, all that. But what about, but what about, but what about the what about ism, um, which I was using and I was using it, like I said, with good intentions, because it was a genuine question. I wasn't using it as a tool to shut somebody down and physically exhaust them with, um, because here's the thing, uh, if you ever find yourself in a situation like this and there is another human being on the other side, please understand that if you want to ask what about X, you're one of 20 or 30 or 50 people all doing the same. And that other person on the other side of this equation, they can't tell the contents of your heart, but they do know from personal experience, a lot of people are are communicating in bad faith. They know full well because they've heard it 5,000 times, the answer to what about. Yes, it was very sad. This one particular cherry-picked issue or this one particular cherry-picked stat is true, but it doesn't invalidate everything else, but you're using it as a way to, um, you know, to derail. And, um, you know, as, and, I, and here's the thing. When I started wearing this, like I said, the overwhelming majority of the responses I've been getting is positive. But I have been getting a lot of, oh, Rado, you support riots. Oh, Rado, you must be a Marxist. And oh, Rado, you are for the destruction of the nuclear family. There's all this ridiculous propaganda that has been thrown at capital BLM, you know, the Black Lives uh, organization as a whole, that doesn't stand a hold water at all but i'm just constantly getting deluged with it at first i'm like okay hey look at this i've got people they're asking questions i can have a conversation i can get through to them um cut to within less than in just a few days i'm having to stay up until 3 a.m every night answering these same questions over and over. And as soon as I do, and as soon as I put a tidy little bow on it, it's like, yeah, this is unassailable. I've de debunked every one of these ridiculous bits of propaganda and cherry picking. I've given ample links, uh, videos, all these things that really spell it out. Um, you know, the history of redlining and, and all these different things. And okay, I can finally go to sleep. I sleep for three or four hours because I'm still tossing and turning because, you know, I mean, I was being deluged by all these, uh, you know, uh, all these people coming from different angles. And I wake up the next morning and, oh, they just ignored everything I said and moved on to the next what about. And that's when I realized, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they, they didn't really care. They were not asking in good faith. They don't want the answers. They just want to silence the, the questions or, you know, eh, that's, I'm really not good at simile and metaphor, but you know what I mean? And, um, and I'm only seeing this in a microcosm because I, I'm just a very lucky, fortunate guy who has a popular channel. I started wearing a shirt and I'm just getting a tiny, tiny bit of it. I am not the center of a firestorm like so many people are. And yet just after just the tiniest bit of this, I had to say, oh, my God, this is exhausting. I can't keep this up because um, it was definitely interesting. One of the recurring themes I saw in that April encounter I had was when I would ask a question, uh, the answer would be, um, you know, equivalent of, what am I, your teacher? You've got Google, figure it out yourself. And my thought at the time was, my gut reaction was, well, you're not helping anything there. I'm here in good faith trying to learn more. You have the answers. If the roles were reversed, I would talk to you. Cut to me two months later saying, you know, finding myself saying, look, dude, use Google. 
I don't have to rebut every single one of your ridiculous phrases. Yeah. It's the answers are out there. Yeah. And I've been in it. I've had skin. I, I don't have skin in the game, but I have skin adjacent to the game for the tiniest window. So right. well, I think that's my Yeah, let me just interrupt you real quick. But here's the thing. We do have to understand, just like you, that a lot of times when people do want to ask questions, yeah. that the people on the other side need to maybe sometimes pull back and go, you know what? This person is probably being genuine. Let me have the discussion instead of slamming them at first and saying, go to Google like you did. Because again, you had to arrive at that epiphany, that personal, oh, you would get it. Yep. Other people may have to do the same thing. I understand. My counterpoint to that is at the end of the day, we are human beings. And, um, it's 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 because of the implicit issues with communication online with no facial tics with no twitches of your body with no vocal inflections all the things that we as a species have relied on for for millennia or I don't know what at least tens if not hundreds of thousands of years all of that stripped away yep. smileys they help but they do not get the job done. And um, I mean, I, I there have been folks who have posted on and I'm like, OK, no, this person is real. This person is clearly not a troll. All right, I'll do the time. And then I get up the next morning and oh, no, they were a troll, too. <laughs> and I couldn't tell the difference. I thought I could tell the difference. And it just gets to the spot where um, yeah. and, and you know, that's the insidiousness of a sea lion troll is it is very, very difficult. You have to have really sharp senses to be able to tell the difference. And if you live your online life, and this is putting aside real life issues like doxing and you know dealing with police brutality or, um, you know, gosh, I mean, Brandon Dixon, when he said as a black man in America, to him, five miles an hour is death. And what he meant by that is he personally never goes more than four miles an hour over a speed limit at any point in his life. Okay. Because he's afraid of what could happen to him. Because he knows what has happened to his friends. And he knows what has happened to him in the past. That's that is that's living on an alien world to me. It is so unthinkable. And, you know, it does require stopping and listening and really taking those ideas in. Because often those ideas come from somebody who is really at their wit's end and is very, very angry. And I know, look, everybody, if you could just modulate your tone, you get more flies with honey than with whatever the other thing is that you don't get flies with, I forget. Um, but it, it, again, you're a human being. And I think at some point, the onus is not on the victim but it uh, to be able to right these wrongs, but it's on us to do the extra legwork. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned Brandon. He has done, I mean, I, and as soon as I saw this, I posted on Twitter. I want all my followers to watch it. I hope a few did. Uh, there have been a couple of, they are called Black AF. I won't say what the, say what the AF stands for. I think you can probably guess. I don't know how family friendly we want this show to be. But they're called, you can do a Google search for um, uh, Black AF RPG Roundtable. I think yeah. they've done three I, of them now. Yes, I did see those. You've seen them? Yeah, they're amazing. It is just literally, they're not, again, they're board game adjacent because they're tabletop RPGers um, and who are just sitting down talking about their experiences in life and in gaming from, you know, the perspective of someone black. And they get incredibly angry. They get incredibly passionate. They get incredibly 
poetic and beautiful too. And I mean, each one of these are, are two or three hours long and they're riveting and the time just flies by. And um, that's them doing all the work they need to do, I think. And it's not like that's hard to find. There are ample opportunities for folks who are genuinely wanting to do better to go out and listen. You just, right. um, you just can't keep asking the same person over and over again. Because you know what? They've been asked 20 times today, and 19 of those requests were from a-holes. Right. And there, I think, is the distinction. And I think you clarified it there, and I hope for a lot of people too, is the clear distinction, so there's not a gray area, is if you are genuine in your interest, in your desire to listen, your desire to learn, if you are genuine, then you will take it upon yourself to do the work. That is a clear distinction because anybody can just sit and ask questions. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it's not genuine if you're just asking questions. If you What does that say about you? It says you're not willing to do the work yourself. Yes, you're not willing to do the work if yourself. Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So that no, that's a that's a great way of explaining it. And and also, I like something you mentioned before. And uh, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to relate that the, the what about isms, okay? Yeah. Because I, I like that term. I, I never is that you or is that like a? Oh a, no 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 no! It's it's predominantly one that's used more in uh, political partisan uh, part, partisan debates uh, okay. about you know uh, Democrat, liberal versus conservative ideals that um, a, a great way to derail them is to yeah yeah but what about this one um, that, you know uh, right. uh, like a good one is uh, gerrymandering it is undeniable the oh, vast yeah. majority of gerrymandering is a conservative led initiative yeah but what about this one district in in uh, Maryland, the right. Democratic one, yeah. What about the for the for every one of those, there's a hundred. You know, of but course, still, it just derails. Like, oh well, we got to be fair and balanced, don't we? Now right. we have to say both sides are equivalent. No, they're not. Right, because that was my argument. That was my um, what I would talk about the George Floyd incident. Yeah, and I didn't know that term about what aboutism, but I would explain it that same exact way because here is why I think it was a cold slap in the face to a lot of people because there was not a what about ism because if you think wow. about it, if you think about it listen with the Rodney King tape what about the tape the the, the 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 video you didn't see what about he didn't just stay down a lot of incidents yeah. are always a what about yeah. for eight minutes and 46 seconds there was no what about what about if he didn't struggle? What about because he didn't do anything? For yeah, I mean the the best you got is what about the bad check he was trying to cash? Yeah, that's but still, the best you've got, right? But in those eight minutes and forty six six seconds, there was no what about. So yeah. people couldn't say, well, if he didn't struggle, maybe no, he there was nothing. So that's that's a great term. I'm so glad you brought that up. I yeah learned something new today. That, that's very good. Well, that's and, and again, I um. I just want to go back because I do want to talk about gaming and stuff, but okay. I, want, but no, I do want the viewers to realize, you know, again, this is part of us and, and it's good to have these things and good to learn and get to know people in different ways. Um, so I want to go back to uh, just again, applaud you. I appreciate what you're doing and thank you for, again, taking the time, being genuine, putting in the work and, and, and doing, doing the work. It's, it, it's good to see. And it's good to see that you're also, willing to um put your brand put your livelihood and 
and really say, well, hey, I'm willing to do this because, again, people like me have to live with this suit of armor all the time. So you are now essentially putting something on you that could potentially ruin your livelihood or whatever, too. So it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, well, I mean, it's the, it's, it is literally the least I could do. I mean, the real heroes are actually out there on the street, um, risking life and limb. I'm just in a very comfortable room wearing a shirt, um, and, and taking flack, but, uh, but thank you still very much. I mean, I'll I'll give one more. I mean, those black AF roundtables were amazing. And, um, again, I, I think it was Brandon, um, it's, uh, I'd already had this history with him and so I really wanted to talk to him. But when he said to get to where I am, I've had to roll crits my entire life. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, like, that's another perfect term, right? Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know what? It's so, it's so funny how, again, and, and this, this is just for everybody, right? If you're sitting in a room with 10 white guys, you're all going to have a lot to relate to. If I'm sitting in a room with 10 black guys, I can relate to all of them. Yeah, yeah. Women, you know, we can because anybody who's you know a group of women that can all relate to each other. Anybody who's alike has common experiences. So it's it's good to hear things like that. I'd, I'd love to meet them someday. Maybe you can introduce me. Um, yeah. Whatever. But anyway, so um, I want. Yeah, talk- maybe you'd want to get him on this show, perhaps. He might be worn out from do- from doing these shows now. Um, but- viewers, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could get up to where you are, but, um, so good. So I, I, I want to, um, transition a little bit and I okay. want to find out a little bit about you. So I want to kind of start from sort of the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Okay. Uh, well, I grew up, most of my childhood was in central California. Um, uh, little town Knights Landing, California, just outside of Woodland, just outside of Sacramento. But the interesting thing about my childhood is the fact that my dad had dreams. He had read several books about building your own boat and then sailing around the world. Or at least he'd read one book and he thought, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And so uh, from my earliest age, I can remember, my dad taught himself how to weld and built a 42-foot steel hull sailboat by himself with with a mostly with, with a little bit of help from some friends. And I think by the time I was eight or nine, we moved on to that boat as a family and basically became nomads. And my life shifted so radically uh, prior to that. Hmm? You lived on a boat? Yes. Uh, I, I had my own bunk. Ryan had his own bunk. Uh, we didn't have uh, you know TV or cable or anything. Uh, we lived in marinas or you know sometimes we would just drop anchor wherever, whatever slew we might happen to be in. Um, yeah. Hmm? How long was this for? Uh, it ultimately went on for about five years and that was an incredibly transformative five years for me because prior to that in grade school, you know, my first, you know, kindergarten one, two, three, I was a very popular kid. Everybody knew me, you know, I I was, I was physically taller than all the other kids. And, um, you know, I, I had a big voice and I was smart and the teachers liked me and I played a lot of sports of course, everybody wanted me to play basketball, and I played a lot of soccer, and I think I was on a track, a developmental, you know, there's the whole nature versus nurture question, but in terms of the nurturing I was getting from the world, I was definitely on a track to be one of those kids who, you know, is uh, captain of the football team and valedictorian and the prom king all at once, one of those triple threat kids. Um, but then we moved on the boat. And for the next, and what happened is, interestingly, it actually kind of dovetails into what we've just been talking about. We, um, you know, my brother Ryan and I got transferred to a local school 
Um, it was near Islands Marina. I couldn't tell you where it was, but it was in a very, very rural central California area. And the school we went to had to be 80 or um, 90% um, Hispanic or Latino, I should say. Um, I, because, you know, a lot of them were the, the kids of, of, you know, of migrant workers and, you know, legal workers and all that. And I overnight went from being the center of the universe, everybody knows who I am, everybody loves me, to literally being, in this tiny little sliver of the world, a minority. And to this day, I remember what that felt like. And I remember the baked-in tribalism that I tended to hang out with the other two or three white kids in the same grade level as me. And the, um, the, the you know, they were mostly Mexican-American kids, uh, you know, if if I don't remember this at all, but my brother swears that I was regularly bullied and beaten up and whatnot, and uh-huh. uh, and my parents remember this too. I don't remember this at all. All I remember is is going from being an extrovert to really withdrawing, and really, I didn't have a hoodie, but if I'd had one, I would have worn it all the time up and just like nobody look at me. I'm just going to stay over here in the corner with a couple other white kids, and um, because I'm I'm in a foreign land and I don't understand what's going on, and they don't understand me, and it's easier just to keep my distance. And um, you know, at the time, I don't think I, 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 I didn't really have any context to understand what was happening. I was just a kid, and this was just the world the way it was. Now, my parents ultimately decided, yo, we're going to have to pull them out because my grades plummeted. And, you know, I often think about that, that, you know, just that, I mean, it's not like the teacher suddenly became bad. It's not like I changed as a person, but the environment I found myself in where I was the other and the impact it had on me, um, you know, just directly affected my academics. And it really worried my mom. And I'm saying, okay, we're going to start homeschooling you. And um, after that, I was homeschooled by both my brother and I. We both had different responses to that. You Hmm? mean homeschooled? Homeschool. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe nobody has ever made that. I think that says more about you than that you were willing to go there. Um, yes, I was boat schooled, and um, and it was really weird. My brother didn't respond well to it. My mom had to spend most of her time focusing on him, so I was just up at the front of the the bow of the boat, just uh-huh. reading whatever I wanted. I basically, for you know, grade five to nine, I was pretty much self taught. Uh, I could just do whatever I wanted. And eventually we moved off the boat. We found ourselves in the Pacific Northwest in a little town called Belfair. And I was finally going to go to high school. Uh, And it turns out I was a year behind. So I was a year older uh, because, I mean, the only reason they allowed us to do that because we didn't have much in the way of accreditation was the fact that my mom went in and was so eloquent speaking on our behalf um, that they would allow me to jump in as a freshman in high school. And, you know, if, if you had met me, as a six-year-old, and then you met me as a 16-year-old, you would have thought, well, that must be separated at birth twins going on here. Because I had so radically changed as a person. Throughout high school, I did have a hoodie in the 80s. And I did wear it um, with my with my Sony Walkman, with the big gigantic um, crappy earphones, just listening to Beatles, trying to avoid eye contact with everybody, um, and uh, you know, and that's the path I was on. Um, you know, my life experiences really changed me in a significant way. Um, I don't know how deep you want to go. I could keep going. No, no, well, no, because again, you know, yeah, because we we got about uh, we got a little bit of time left. We got about twenty okay. minutes. So, but yeah, so during that time. Uh, so now, you know, you're, uh, you know, you moved around, got on the boat, went to the boat, went to the school. Now you're in yeah. high school. Yeah. Were there gaming as part of your life with you and your brother or your family? That's a good question. Um, 
my family, as of I, I am told, I don't remember this much. As a very young child, I was hyper competitive, like throwing tantrums if I didn't win. Kind of t- competitive, and my mom kind of recognizes that maybe she shouldn't have let me win so much. Um, whereas my dad, on the other hand, was very much okay. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to destroy you. It's sorry. You are going to be sorry you sat down at this table, kind of a thing. <laughs> um, and uh, but really, my gaming for most of my life was focused on video games because at a very young age, before we moved on the boat, uh, when we were still in our first house, my parents for Christmas one year bought us a Sears and Roebuck Pong machine. Oh wow! I, I must have been four or five maybe even three. I'd have to look up the dates. But I very clearly remember that that was the first time in my very young life that I was actually better at something than my dad. Because I imagine most people who, you know, had, who have parents had to, you know, at, at some point in your life, you realize, oh, they're not gods. You know, they are, they are, they are capable of, of, of not doing everything perfectly and uh, making me feel inadequate because I, I can't possibly, I can't fix a car. I still can't fix a car like my dad could, but, um, but I could beat him re- reliably. And I knew he wasn't um, throwing the game for me. I could beat him at Pong. And uh-huh. that made me a lifelong video game fan right there. And for the majority of my childhood and my adult life and my professional life, I define myself by my love and passion for video games. And it wasn't until 2009 that I stumbled across Pandemic by accident, the cooperative board game Pandemic, uh-huh. that I had any concept that there... I mean, I briefly had dabbled in Magic the Gathering and some other CCGs at kind of the height of that. But okay. I never it, it, that never stuck. And uh, so it was all about video games. But then my wife and I played Pandemic and I realized, oh my gosh, there's something completely different. And within two years, I had lost all passion or interest for video games. And in fact, I said, I, I can't even make these anymore. I'm retiring. Yeah. Um, because that's what you used to do, right? That was, that was a yes. career for you was making video games. Almost two decades. I was in the video game industry. I started out as a Nintendo gameplay counselor back okay. before the internet existed and people got stuck. How want to know how to beat Gammon. They, Gannon and Zelda, they called me and I told them that okay. was the weirdest college uh, job you could possibly get. Uh, and um, and that led to junior design positions, to design positions, etc. Okay. And what was your so what was um so if two thousand and nine was when you and Jen played Pandemic, yes. right? Board yes. game. Yes. Uh, were you still in the video industry, or had you left by that point, or what? What was the transition there? I was still in the video game industry. Um, I we were finishing up Brink, which is the last game I published. And um, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry, I interrupt you real quick. When you say publish, were, 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 was it kind of like you know working for Hasbro where you design a game and you don't get any credit? Or were any of the video games you designed yours or are you just an employee? Oh, I, yeah, okay. Um, I very quickly, through a, a good deal of luck, quite frankly, found myself um, as the lead designer. After you know a brief stint as a junior designer, after a brief stint at doing some other stuff, I found myself thrust into the lead designer position on Siphon Filter, which went on to become one of the biggest uh, hits on the original PlayStation platform. And it was really kind of ahead of its time, pretty innovative, I, if I do say so myself. And when I say the lead designer, for folks who don't know, the best equivalent I could draw is I was kind of the Steven Spielberg, as in I was the equivalent of a movie director, in that ultimately 
everything that happens on the screen is my responsibility. I don't necessarily do everything. I don't write the code. I don't make the art. Um, but I am the final decision maker. Although, of course, I have to answer to powers that be too, just like Steven Spielberg sometimes. Or at least maybe he used to have to in his early days when he was making Jaws and he had to answer to people. But anyway, um, that is what I very quickly found myself in. And then for the subsequent 15 years, I just did a bunch of really big, high-profile games where I was the top banana making all the creative decisions, um, deciding on the overall direction that all these games would take. And as a result, you know, for better or for worse, sometimes much better, sometimes not so great. Those games are ultimately my responsibility, what ends up on the shelf. And so that's what I did for 15 years full-time. Was, I was the creative lead on big multi-million dollar video games. Wow, very cool. Okay, so now I want to find out, and I'm still trying to, uh, I'm not sure about the timeline, but I still want to stick around 2009, the pandemic thing. Okay, sure, sure, sure. I, I want to find out, so video games, 2009, okay, you played Pandemic, so now we're getting into board games, Euro games. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're on some tiny little island uh, <laughs> on, the other, on the other side of the world. So give us a little okay. synopsis well, of how that happened. Yes, okay. So right around the time, my wife and I discover Pandemic. And if you'd like to hear the particulars about that, do a Google search for Rado first 10 games. I've done a whole video on this topic where I literally talk about the first 10 games, modern designer board games that my wife and I encountered and my journey through that process of learning how do I find what type of games we like, all of that stuff. So you can, I'll go, I'll go into a lot of depth there. But what I don't do is talk about how it led me to change careers in that video. So I was the lead designer or creative director, I think was my official title on Brink. And um, Brink, I was incredibly proud of. As far as I was concerned, it was my magnum opus. And it I still say to this day, it was definitely ahead of the curve and doing stuff that I don't think the industry as a whole was ready for. And I was incredibly proud, incredibly excited about it. It was it was positioned to be one of the biggest hits of the year. Um, by the time we shipped, we had more pre-launch um, awards than any other game in history because people all around the world had played it at conventions and whatnot. And uh, it, it was it was going to be a big monster hit. And it released and it crashed and burned hard for really? myriad technical reasons that have more than anything else. Uh, there were mistakes made. I'll leave it at that. Everybody... Okay is culpable. I made mistakes. The publisher made mistakes. The members of my team made mistakes. But at the end of the day, it did not live up to, it was going to be one of the most hyped games. I mean, on some level, it probably never could have lived up. There was so much hype around that game, um, but it crashed and burned. So that was the first nail in okay. my video game developer coffin. But that's okay, because in the lead up to the launch, of course, everybody knew Brink was going to be the biggest thing ever. And the industry was very abuzz. And I spent the last couple months of development on Brink on the road doing a uh, dog and pony show showing publishers, look, we can do this for you too. Um, we did it as an original IP. Um, but one of the coolest moments in my life was getting to sit down with director Christopher Nolan for a week in a room with him and his producer wife and his producer brother talking about Inception because we came this close to making Inception the video game off of the strength of Brink. But that did, that fell through. And so many other amazing, cool opportunities almost there fell through. Um, but then we got what was truly going to be the greatest thing in my life. As a lifelong Marvel Comics fan, we did land the, uh, the uh, contract to make Marvel Secret Wars 3. And Tim, oh. uh, you're, a video, you're a comic book guy, right? Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to let you know something about me. And I'm a super dork in the fact I know nothing other than board games. I don't know. Wow. Card. You are very targeted. Okay. I am. So that's why I'm a super dork. So okay. I, I'm sorry. Okay. No problem. Well, Secret Wars is arguably the most important um, moment in the entire modern comic books history because it was the first time that all the Marvel characters, it wasn't the first time, but it was the first important time that all the characters came together for a big event. That okay. now defines comic bookism. Um, you know, it, it defines what the Marvel Cinematic Universe did when um, everybody came together for the first time in uh, Captain America Civil War and all that. So to be able to make a game that is literally Secret Wars 3, and it would have been can, it would have been consistent with the lore and mythology of the comics that I've been reading my entire life. We were working with Greg Pak, one of the hottest comic book writers in the industry, uh, the guy who gave us Planet Hulk and World War Hulk. And it was so amazing, so exciting. Yes, it was a bit demoralizing what happened with Brink, but hey, just, you know, pick ourselves up, learn our lessons, move forward. Secret Wars is going to be even better. And right around that time, at the same time I'm going through this arc professionally, at home, I'm finding myself playing a lot less video games and playing a lot more board games after I discover Agricola and Dominion. And, you know, hey, and I try Arkham Horror, and that didn't work for me, but I find other things that do, and I find, hey, all my spare time is no longer gobbled up by video games. It's gobbled up by board games, because ultimately, they are a better vehicle for my wife and I coming together than video games ever were. And we've spent hundreds of hours playing video games together. Um, so I've got this pull, but at the same time, I'm doing the most exciting work I've ever done, the true culmination of my career. And then a new executive comes into Disney and says, hey, you know what? How I can make a name for myself? I'll save us a lot. I'll save us tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars by canceling this project. And that'll make me look really good. Oh, wow. And just like that, with almost no warning at all, uh -huh. my dream, my ultimate dream uh, gets canceled. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. What year was this? Oh, geez. I'd have to look it up. If you go to LinkedIn.com, you'll see, because um, my whole video game biography is there. You can, you can see the year. Uh, okay. It's, 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 uh, it, but I can tell you, six months after that, uh -huh. I, I, well, after that got canceled, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I'll be honest. I said right up front, I'm the luckiest guy you're ever going to meet, Tim. That is certainly true, because in the uh, 15 years, I was full-time designer. I did make a lot of money. If you are the creative lead on a game that does incredibly well, it you make a lot of money. Most of my peers would end up going and buying Ferraris and Humvees and wow. and jet skis and whatnot, but my wife never did. She uh -huh. invested all of it because uh, I'm also, I mean, heck, Tim, you know this. You know how cheap we are. How um, <laughs> you know this? You know what? For everybody out there, I'm gonna have to agree with you, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely something I learned from my wife. So at the age of 45, I decided I am done. I am retiring. Oh, okay. And uh, because, uh, and my wife, we ran the numbers based on our savings, based on our investments, based on, you know, our 401ks. That we, all we got to do is get to 60 or 65, whatever the, the year is. And we can do that if we live more frugally than we've ever frugaled before. And we're ready for this. And I'm like, okay, honey, we can frugal. Like, nobody's frugal. And um, there was one problem, Tim. What was that? All of this stuff is very expensive. Yes. 
very expensive. There is nothing frugal about any of these things. And by that point, I was so down the rabbit hole. I was spending, you know, three or four grand every year buying games and, you know, but then flipping them, selling them, turning them into other games and all that. But it was like, well, okay, you know what? You could probably have six games a year. Like, oh, I can't do that, honey. (laughs) That that, that won't do. Um, And that's when I decided, hey, you know what? Publishers send um, free games to Tom Vassell, this Tom Vassell guy, all the time. Uh-huh. I've got an iPhone right here. How hard can it be? And so, um, and plus, hey, I'm going to have a lot of spare time. Uh, this would be a nice, this would be a nice hobby, and it'll flip into getting some games when I become popular. Okay. And and that's where Rotto Runs Through came from. Okay. Were you still in America at that point? No, we had been in. Um, let's see. Obviously, we skipped a lot of stuff. There is high school and then college where I met my wife and then you know, all the stages of my career. But uh, at some point in my career, I felt like I re- it was when I was 35. I was I know I was 35 because it was on my 35th birthday. My wife and I, we were celebrating at a Chinese restaurant in Austin, Texas that we really loved because that's where we were living at the time. And my fortune cookie said, you will soon travel across the great water or something. Ooh, look at that. And for all of our adult lives, we have always talked about not just visiting overseas, but living overseas, really getting steeped in the culture as opposed to just being tourists. And that sparked me into action. And I started looking for um, European developers because I was at the height. I was super hot and I could convert that into a career overseas. And so we did. That's when I went to Lionhead and I worked on Fable 2, um, which is arguably the biggest game I ever did. And uh, so we were there in England. We ultimately were in England for just under a decade. Wait, wait, I know. What part of England did you live in? Uh, we were in southern England. Uh, most of or all of it was in a little town called Guildford, which is uh, uh, an hour outside of London. Oh, okay. Because I don't know if you knew this. I lived in England too, but I, no, I did not know that. I lived in the West Country. I, oh, I was, really? Yes, I lived west of the M5, right in the Somerset Devon border, right in the oh British, man, in a little town called Minehead. Yeah, in a little town called Lionhead. Mine, Minehead. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would have known if there was a town called Lionhead. Yeah, yeah, Jen. Yeah, we did. We did some driving tours of uh, of the Devon. I mean, that was kind of Jen's dream. You know, this is where we're going to grow old and die in this part. Although ultimately, our plan was as part of the retirement. You know, we can't stay here in Guildford, which uh-huh. basically had near London cost of living expenses. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but our plan was to move to Wales because I'm I'm sure you know. I mean, you, if you live in Wales, you can live with almost third world cost of living and yet first world amenities. I mean, you know, it's just so cheap if you're willing to live with a lot of rain, which right. we lived in Seattle. We could handle it. Yeah. Um, got a thick accent as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 But I mean, not as charm. We love Scott. I love Scott's accents. Oh, man. Every Scott I, uh, Scott I worked with, I, I love. But anyway, so we were in England for just shy of 10 years. And I know that because we were there long enough to get our dual citizenship. Okay. I I carry two passports. Um, I'm not particularly proud of the two passports I carry these days, ever since 2016. Uh-huh. But still, um, <laughs> we were able. So I retire. I start doing Rotto runs through with a with a crappy iPhone 4. Looks like garbage, mm-hmm. but you know what? I I won't deny that I have a certain charisma because that's what I was able to use to push myself so far in the games, video game industry that allowed me to stand out. And I was at the right place at the right time. I was doing a format that nobody else was re- actually, some people were, but they hadn't really broken through. And I was lucky enough to succeed. 
uh, within short order. But within three months of retirement, a call, an email comes in saying, hey, there's a startup in Malta. You interested? And we're like, oh, how can we say no to that? I mean, because for for the decade we were in England. hmm? A video game startup company? A video game startup company. For the decade we'd been in England, we had used that as a base to be able to see a lot of Europe, do lots of road trips and whatnot. We thought, oh, we go to Malta. It's right there in the middle of the Mediterranean. We can use that as a base for lots of travel throughout um, you know, the Arab world and Africa. Okay. And that'll be amazing. Turns out uh, Malta is a dead end on Air Force. And you pretty much have to fly to Rome or something like that to go anywhere. So that didn't work. But still, it was amazing to be able to live in this little uh, Mediterranean paradise. The startup... Never really got off the ground. Um, I, within nine months, I was out. Within uh, just under two years, the whole thing had shut down, unfortunately. But instead of moving to Wales, we said, hey, look, we just got moved to Malta, where there's also an insanely low cost of living and yet insanely high quality of life. So let's just do it here. Um and uh, so we did. We ended up staying there for, I think, seven years or something like that. And that's when I really started pushing hard on Rado Runs Through. And um, you know, it was very convenient uh, because one direct flight was from Malta to Dusseldorf, which is a very short drive to Essen, Germany. Oh, so nice. one of the things that really propelled my channel was at the time, I remember I was the first major video for Zulk in the Mayan calendar. Because okay. I brought it back from Essen and recovered it within a week, and everybody else were waiting for it to show up in America, you know. And so, I, you know, so I, so much of my professional story is good luck to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, Rado runs through is certainly no different, right? Absolutely. So, so, real quick, yeah. Where did Rado, the nickname, come from? My name is Richard Allen Ham. My whole life, my family called me Raw. That's my family nickname. Uh, in fact, I remember having, I had a Snoopy and Woodstock shirt as a little kid where they were sitting on benches holding up little signs that said raw because they were, you know, they were like cheering on some sport event. And all the kids, I thought it was so cool because I had a custom shirt. In fact, no, I didn't. It just, but anyway, so my, my family's always called me raw. When I started playing EverQuest, um, the first character I made was a human cleric. And I didn't know if I was going to stick with him. So I just named him um, Raham, R-A-H-A-M, my initials and A-M. So okay. I was just saying, I'm naming him me. No uh, creativity at all. Richard Allen Ham, Raham. And I didn't like the character. So I re-rolled a new, a Hobbit cleric. But by that point, everybody in the game knew me as Raham. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I want people to be able to find me again. I'll name this halfling cleric Rado because it rhymes with Frodo. So Rado is my Hobbit name. Oh, there you go. Very good. Okay. So you started uh, Richard Runs Through or Rado Runs Through. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you got this going. And at what point did all of a sudden the realization came to you, whether it's through Patreon or whatever kind of other sources and funding, whatever you decided to do, uh, at what point was it where all of a sudden you were like, wow, Jen, I can support us. I can make a living. I can. This is, this is a real job. How, how did that come about? Well, okay, let's walk through this. I, I start out and I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm still in England. I'm just doing a few games just based on what was on my shelf with my phone. And then I get the job and we move to Malta and I pretty much put it on the shelf. For the nine months I was there, I probably maybe did like one or two videos a month. Maybe, if that. Um, but then I ended up parting ways with TRC in, in Malta. And uh, and we decide, okay, well, we could go back 
to England and continue with the plan, or we could stay here and move from Malta. I mean, Malta is very expensive if you live in the touristy area, but if you're willing to live in the rural area, it's incredibly cheap. So we moved to Gozo, um, which is a super tiny island with a super tiny population in what is already one of the smallest uh, uh, size and population countries in the world. Um, it's weird. I mean, we, we always joked about how we lived in America and then we went to England. That wasn't small enough. Let's go to Malta. That's not small enough. Let's go to Gozo. Um, which is practically the size of Gilligan's Island. And um, we couldn't get much smaller than that as we just kept pulling away from the world. And uh, But that was okay because we had board games to pull ourselves closer together. After um, I was done with that, I ran my first Kickstarter campaign because in the year I'd been doing it, the publishers weren't kicking down my door to... Uh, to uh, you know, give me those review copies that I was I was wanting. And I'm like, okay, I want to start covering some new games. I'm kind of running out of games from what I have that I think would be interesting. And so I did it. My first Kickstarter, which ended up raising four thousand dollars from my small audience at that point, who really loved me, was just to be able to say, oh look, if I get this four thousand dollars, I can go back to getting the four grand worth of games that I used to buy every uh, year when I was working full time as a very very high level video game executive. And that was the intent. And that was great. And, um, but then come around to a year later, are we going to do this again? Are we going to do this again? And at this point, Tim, remember how I said, when I, when I, when I left because Secret Wars got canceled, Jen and I, we were, or I would say mostly Jen ran the numbers. So, okay. I think we can make this work. Uh-huh. It was starting to get to the point where we realized, okay, we can't necessarily make this work. This is uh, not necessarily going to work out and we need to do something. And it was at that point I had to make a choice. It was at, in time with my second Kickstarter, because the first one was literally just to raise funds to be able to buy more games to continue filming. But although really, secretly, I just wanted to play the games. But um, by, by a year later, I had caught on enough, and I, was, I didn't need to do it again. But Jen says, um, you might need to go back and go back to your old video game making life. And I didn't want to do that. At this point, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know what good I would be to anybody right now. I shouldn't say that just in case I do have to go back um, at some point. No, I don't want to burn those bridges. <laughs> yeah, but I am so out of the loop. The last full modern AAA console game I played was the second Batman Arkham game. And I only played that all the way through because I was helping pitch for my company before I left and retired so they could land that project. I just had to be versed in it. Otherwise, I wouldn't even have played that. And I haven't played anything since, uh, except for board game implementations every once in a while. Although that's not true. I have recently gotten an Oculus. And so VR gaming is kind of calling to me a little bit, but probably not enough to pull me away from all this. But anyway, so when uh, coincidentally, Jen was saying, yeah, we might have to make a change. This might not work. numerically after all, uh, based on unexpected changes in um, taxation and this and that and the other. And uh, so I decided, well, this is it then. Let me do my second Kickstarter. I did one a year ago. I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to do one again, but let's see how this one does and if that'll be enough. And that one ended up bringing in, I think, 15 or 16,000. And Jen said, okay, yeah, that'll do it. You 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 can keep doing this. Okay. It's like, okay, then I guess now I'm a professional um, YouTuber. And so now every year is Kickstarter. Is that the majority of funding for? Well, I don't do Kickstarters anymore. A couple of years ago, actually, coincidentally, when I moved back to the States, uh, I stopped doing just the yearly fundraising, you know, following the PBS model, basically, uh, public broadcast model. And instead, I switched over to Patreon um, just because 
I, I, I like the idea of it just being kind of a passive thing. It's not a big deal. If you watch any of my videos, there's a little eye that appears up in the top right corner of the screen, right at the beginning that says help Rod run. And if you want to click that and back me, great. I never ask anybody for anything. Um, and if you're just a fan of the show and you click that, you can back me and you can get some exclusive videos and stuff like that. So I have switched from Kickstarter, but you know, uh, but the, I think there were two more Kickstarters before I made that switch, you know, and they continued to uh, build. And, you know, because there were definitely things changing. I mean, one of the big ones is what ultimately led me back here, um, which was, you know, uh, my father died. And that meant a lot of the retirement income that supported my mom disappeared. And so we had to start. We, we realized we had financial responsibilities that we had not planned on when we originally tried this crazy retire at 45 thing. Okay. And, so, and that's when we started deciding, well, we, we have to do more. And now ultimately... Um, my mom, who was living out in Belfair, Washington, the place that I moved to we, a million years ago when we moved off the boat, she had never left. She was in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere. Her van had broken down. Her dog had died. Uh, she has extreme medical complications with HHT, which is a very rare um, blood disorder. And we were just with every passing week, with every passing month, realizing there was less and less we could do to help her. And we decided it was time to move back to the States and, you know, take on my responsibility of, you know, being a good son. She had raised me. She had been there for me for all my early life. I, we have to be there in her golden years. And so that's when we moved back and um, we find ourselves in this little neck of the woods in the Pacific Northwest in an unnamed location. Um, because back when we were in Malta, I told everybody where we lived and people would actually just show up at our door saying, Oh man, I really love the show. Can we play a game? Really? And Jen says, yeah, we're not letting that happen again. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. You need to dip your lip when people ask where you are. So I'm flying incognito. All I'll say is the Pacific Northwest, outside right. of Portland. Yeah. Portland. And I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to ask you to disclose your location. But <laughs> I will ask you. Yes. So, so okay, so um, you were in England. You were in Malta. Yep. You came back um, due to unfortunate circumstances. I'm sorry about the passing of your father and the health of your mother. Yep. Although she's doing so much better now. I mean, Jen and I both agree it was it was the best thing in the world we could do. Um, you know, I, and while there's a lot we miss about living in Europe, um, you know, on the whole, we're very, very happy with the choice we made. Okay, good. Because that, that's kind of the question okay. I was asking you. So out of like what you've come up to so far, and even though you were sort of forced back here, and you know what right. I mean, I mean it, right. Um, tell us, is Rado, is Richard Ham? Is he in a good place? How 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 are you loving life at the moment? Oh, I, I, geez. I mean, I've got the freaking dream job, Tim. I mean, I can't deny that. I, for the first time in my life, I work for myself. And, you know, that was a concept I don't think I had ever. I mean, I, I spent my entire professional career working for other people, having to, um, you know, compromise and, uh, you know, put, the, the needs of stakeholders above my own creatively. And it was just the way things were. I, I didn't give it a second thought. Um, and at the same time, my wife has always worked for herself first as a, as a jeweler and then as a graphic designer, and then ultimately as a glass artist. So uh, she's always been successful in that arena. And I mean, she's never worked very little in her professional adult life. She ever actually had coworkers. And so it's, been so great to have 100% control over my destiny. And I recommend it to everybody if you can do it, because it's great. Uh, and, you know, that yeah. whole, you know what, as long as you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, because sometimes this is work. 
Yeah. It is weird to say sometimes playing games is work um, uh, on a particularly busy month. But, yeah, I have no complaints at all. Um, and uh, it's weird. At, the craziest thing is having moved back here, our expenses have exploded. Oh, I mean, I oh, my gosh, yes. So, I mean, what, once you move back here, I, I switched over to the Patreon model, which we knew was going to precipitate a bit of a drop-off in terms of income. But we were still thinking in kind of Malta and Europe terms. And because we we found a cheap place to live, and um, you know, and, and my mom moved in with us, and and lives with us now, and she has a very small uh, pension that helps out a little bit. But geez, Louise, healthcare! Oh my gosh, it is so ridiculous how much we have to spend every single month. That's a whole nother whole nother topic. Believe yep, me. yep, yep. I need to find a shirt about that. Yeah, uh, because. Um, yeah, we have to spend so much every month for a service that we can't afford to use because we're paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a service that has such an insanely high deductible that we basically, um, you know, when I really screwed up my ankle the other day, Jen, and I talked, should we go see somebody? No, let's just live with it. Um, it it'll take care of itself. That's unthinkable. Yes, I mean, in Europe. We'll get into that another show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's why... You know, starting a year ago now, I think mm-hmm. I had to start charging. Not only did I need the Patreon income to be able to, you know, or cost of living, um, but uh, I needed to start charging for uh, I, whenever I do a Kickstarter video, a preview, I now charge for that because of the cost of healthcare and because, oh my gosh, we pay so much in taxes. It's amazing. And I'm not one to complain. I, I'm pro big government, I am pro taxation. Uh, but still, it led to a very, I mean, there was real sticker shock in a big, big way moving back to the States. And uh, this is not where we're going to grow old and die. We are still, the plan hasn't changed. The Devon countryside still calls to Jen. It never stopped. I'm, I'm going to tell you something, Richard. My wife and I, because again, we lived out there. And yeah. I'm sorry about that ding. I thought I had turned my phone off. That shouldn't have come through. Um, but anyway, that is our that is our retirement. Also, we are going to open a tea room in the West Country. Have you ever had a cream tea? Yes, of course. Okay, so you know exactly what I'm talking I know exactly about. what you're talking about. And what's really going to be important is getting the right uh, chef for your uh, for your rabbit. A rabbit? good Welsh rabbit. You know, that's the bread dipped in like fondue like cheese. Oh my gosh. Which it's spelled rare bit, I believe, but it's pretty, yeah, generally pronounced rare. Yeah, yes, absolutely, yes. But yeah, so that's our dream too. So listen, Richard, scones and heavy cream, uh, you know, and locally sourced jam. Oh my gosh, I know exactly. How. Americans don't understand. Oh, that, is, is that just like what a KFC biscuit? No, that is not what a scone is. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, absolutely. We'll have to talk about that more. Uh, so. Yeah. But listen, I want I want to go ahead and thank you very much. And again, I'm sorry for this. Yes, something is calling you. You you have a pressing issue. It sounds like. <laughs> Particularly turned off my phone. I didn't think they would be through. But anyway, okay. Um, but I want again. I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to go ahead and do this for me. Thank you also for talking about the Black Lives Matter and again what is going on in society and sharing your thoughts about that with the community and also letting us know a little bit about you and how you have become such a tremendous force in the gaming industry. And we want you to continue to do what you're doing. So real briefly, before we go, if you can go ahead and please just go through all of your channels, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, whatever, and let the audience know 
where they can have a chance to go see Rado runs through. Yeah, I'm not hard to find. I do. I was so lucky that um, I did. Rado.com was owned by somebody. And um, I thought, oh, well, that's too bad. That would have been great. And it turns out he stumbled across my channel, I think, because he was looking to try to sell it. But then I converted him into board gaming. And it turns out he loved it so much, he gifted me Rado.com and didn't even wow. charge me for it, even though he had been squatting on it. So... Long story short, you can just go to rotto.com and that takes you to my YouTube page. But if you go to Twitter and search for rotto, twitter.com slash rotto, everything I post, I'd say it on Twitter. Our, our rotto runs through, I say it on Facebook. If you go to guild.rotto.com, you will find uh, my guild on Board Game Geek, where like minded individuals who tend to like the sorts of things that my wife and I like, low conflict, um, nice and crunchy Euroy type games tend to congregate and talk about such things. If you like my show, and um, no, I'm not even going to say it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm doing great to answer your earlier question. So, but yeah, just start with Rado.com and uh, and uh, enjoy. There you go. Well, thank you again one more time for joining us for this edition of Meatable Meat. And you know what? If other things happen, if things come up. We would have to have you back for another episode. Yeah, it was fun. And then we can talk about our true passion, scones. There we go. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have to make them and eat them on air. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You scones go. with Tim and Rado. There yeah. you go. There's yeah. your next show. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you, everybody. And please join us again next time for another edition of Meeperville Meats. <laughs>